In our United Methodist Church, we call our bishops Episcopal leaders. This comes from a Greek word, episkopos, which means to give oversight to or supervise. Much of our structure is borrowed from our ancestors in the Anglican church and traditions. But our United Methodist structure also borrows heavily from U.S. American government structure. Our Episcopal leaders function as a sort of executive branch in the church, giving, filling distinctive leadership roles and providing important leadership. For most of, most of us in local churches, we think of bishops primarily in some of the powers they most clearly have that have significant impact on all of us. They have power and authority over appointing pastors to local churches and presiding at the annual conference. But the role of a bishop, as it's practiced, as it has happened or could in the future, is continually evolving and shifting in the midst of moments of denominational change. And at this moment in the United Methodist Church, as we continue to wait for a general conference in 2024, as congregations like mine seek ways to further deepen our commitment to ministry with and for LGBTQ plus persons in our communities, families, and congregations, we have before us a number of choices. I'm Reverend Molly Vetter, the senior pastor at Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles, and it's my privilege to welcome you to this episode of Where Do We Go From Here, UMC. Occasioned by our coming general jurisdictional conferences, occasions when we will elect new bishops for the work of the church, as I prepare to participate in our Western jurisdiction jurisdictional conference, I wanted to understand a little bit more about the work of a bishop and what difference it makes for our local churches. And there's no one I could think of better suited to answer that set of questions than my friend and colleague, Gary Keene. For more than two decades, as a clergy person, he has served in roles that walk right alongside bishops. In conference office leadership roles, he has seen up close the work of a bishop. It's distinctive possibilities and limitations as we seek to be the church together. So thank you for joining me for these moments of conversation with Gary Keene. Glad to have a chance to sit down with you, Gary. You are on my list of people who know more than average about bishops. You have spent a vast quantity of years, something like 23 years, this Working in conference leadership jobs that have shifted in title, council director, director of connectional ministries, assistant to the bishop, four different bishops in three different conferences. You've been up close in a way that many of us have not to the work of a bishop. So as we're getting ready for a jurisdictional conference this year, what should we know about bishops? What I would observe about uh, the bishop's role is, number one, even though we it serves ostensibly at the sort of the top of the pyramid, if you use a hierarchical model for our institution, and we imagine that it has a lot of power, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. The Episcopal office has very limited formal powers given our polity. And, you know, as some folks may know, that's because our polity was written and developed as 
sort of a mirror image of the federal governmental system of an executive branch and a judicial branch and a legislative branch and the bishops function within that executive branch. But it's a very, uh, very distributed power. Uh, one of the things that I would come back to in a bit to talk about is the role of the Council of Bishops, where all the bishops of the church sit together uh, and seek to give leadership for the church. Um, but the, the role really has very few things that it can straight up do without asking somebody else <laughs> for right. uh, for consultation or votes or anything like that. In my so, uh, in last the last episode, I interviewed Bishop Hagia, mm -hmm. and he's got this diagram he uses that as an inverted pyramid or inverted triangle, where the bishops, the conference staff is at the bottom, really enabling not only the churches, but at the top, the world or the kingdom yeah. of God. Right. Um, but still, it's like a it's a small seat at the bottom, yeah. whether you put it at the top or at the bottom. Yeah. It's a yeah particular role. So with, within that framework, then I think that, you know, the quickest answer to the question of what difference does a bishop make in the life of a, a local congregation, the work it's trying to do, the best answer is one of the oldest answers uh, I've I've heard, and it goes way back to a, a laywoman in Chester, Montana, up on the Canadian border. Uh, and you may know her, Molly, Margaret Novak. I think I do know Margaret. Yeah, so Margaret's just, you know, everything you would ever want out of a... A, a true disciple who has really given the best of her life on all fronts as a mom, as a business owner, as a member of her local congregation, and as a, particip a participant, active participant in the connectional ministries of the church. So back when we were wrestling with these kind of questions, you know, one of the things that she, the, one of the things she said in response to basically this same question, what difference does a bishop make? Why do I have to go to jurisdictional conference and burn time away from my family? to try and peg somebody in this role, uh, as she very succinctly put it, all a bishop has to do, just send me a good pastor, right? <laughs> yep. Just just give us a good pastor. Could you do that? We won't ask for anything else. Just send us a good pastor. And that is the clear, direct responsibility and authority of a bishop uh, to make that appointment. And so what I think that... To my mind, what that illuminates is, you know, one of the things we often say in these settings where we have many, you know, a lot of people participating in the life of the church, the system of the church, the governance of the church, the missions of the church, is we want to say, based on our conviction about baptism, is that everybody is important. And indeed, everybody is important, but some people are strategic which is to say they are in a they're in a function or a place formally or informally that's catalytic to the whole. You know, the old, the old school example is Paul Revere. There was very specific reasons why he was chosen and took on that role to, you know, raise, sound the alarm. Uh, and it had to do with that people knew him. He knew the people. He knew where they were. He knew the route. He was able to make a, a strategic difference at that time and in that place in history. So in is, that because, way, is that because the role asks you to be responsible to a larger area? Like it's charged with having that view of not, you know, primarily the local church, but sort of the church in like a regional basis and in connection to the worldwide church. I mean, it is, is that part of it that the assignment for the Bishop is, is broad geographically. 
Yeah. And so to have someone that's keeping that view in. Focus. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's, and, and that would, that was, that would be what I was, was aiming for. And I think it's evident for you as a pastor in a local congregation in the same way. I mean, when you're appointed there as a pastor, your appointment is not to the congregation of Westwood UMC. It is to the Westwood charge. That's the charge point of ministry for the body of the church in this particular, you know, in this particular place and in this particular time. And so you represent in your role visibly, uh, tangibly and incarnationally Sunday by Sunday, the broader church as a whole, the whole of the body of Christ. So, you know, over, over time since, um, you know, doing a lot of writing and communication stuff on behalf of the Bishop's office and the conference, I got, so I was really uh, rigid about being clear about when I use small C church versus capital C church. And that is, uh, I do, that is indeed the role of the bishop um, to embody at the sort of the other end of the spectrum, if you will, or the body of the whole church, that wholeness uh, that we are, that it is, that the body of the church is much more than just any one place. In the same way that someone who comes into the life of the church at the congregational level, I know that would be a typical way for people to enter into the whole of the body of Christ. And what is, you know, what is the arc of their transformation and development through either organically and naturally becoming a part of the community or intentionally through membership classes and whatever that might be, whatever need they had that brought them through the door into the life of, of that congregation, eventually and ideally, they discover that it's not all about me. It is about our connection and my relationship with others our relationship with who is my neighbor and all the world is, you know, the world is my parish. Everyone is my, my neighbor. So that to continually for the bishop's role to continually give voice to that in a, hopefully a transformative and visionary way that we are part of so much more than just ourselves. And in that is our hope, our strength and everything we need to be who we are called to be and called to be as a part of the, of the body of the whole. Which is, you know, that's uh, that's not an easy thing to brand. It's not an easy thing to to encapsulate so quickly that people get it right away. The, the shortest phrase to my mind is they are the spiritual and temporal leader of the basic body of the Methodist Church in our in our denomination in our polity. The basic body of the church is the conference, so that collection of congregations. They are the spiritual and temporal leader in the same way that a Local pastor is the spiritual and temporal leader of an individual congregation. But they are also spiritual and temporal leader for the whole of the church. And so one of the common laments, both about bishops and I would say among bishops, amongst themselves, is they live with their feet in two worlds. You know, one is the annual conference where they have direct responsibility as sort of the chief, the chief pastor in the best sense of the word. But they're also participating in the leadership of the entire body of, of the church, as well as representing the church in so, so many ways, you know, so for a bishop coming in, you know, coming in in the morning to sit down at a desk as if that was a, a normal pattern, <laughs> right, right. You know, the, the full and detailed list of everything they're supposed to do that day runs way off the edge of the desk, you know, so for the first, from a management's perspective, the first thing they're going to do 
is decide what's not going to get done today. What's what's just what's I just know it's not going to happen. And to try and get that down to I'm going to try and get these two, three, four, five things done, knowing full well that given the nature of the role, something weird is going to come through the door here sometime today, two or three different times and disrupt the my best laid plans. And that's just, you know, pick one. Either it's either that's the list for conference work or it's the list for the representational and denominational work. So they are always being pulled apart, always being pulled apart, trying to live in both these places and connect them and make them whole. What I've what I've observed over time then is in the face of sort of that continuing avalanche or, or tidal wave of things that must be done as well as the things that should be done you would, you would want for them to be doing is with time and and with help with health healthy attitude and healthy guidance what i've observed is bishops have come to discover that the only way they can do this job the only way they can do this job is not by you know, kind of becoming a, a super player of whack the mole, trying to get all the administrative overhead pieces done, all the temporal leadership pieces done. The focus shifts and deepens around the spiritual role for their own for their own well being, and then by expressing that and calling for that and setting the table for that, primarily with the with the team of the cabinet. You know, that's the closest circle of responsibility. Ideally, in a in a perfect world, the conference, whatever the structure is in a conference for its connectional table or its council, whatever that might be, that's also a place where they can genuinely directly be a spiritual leader. And I think that's where it makes a difference because it puts it it it, it allows them to claim the core of what we what I think we have to be about as the church, and that is to stay in love with God. If there's somebody isn't calling us to that constantly, we'll, we'll get pulled apart the same way. You know, there's there's plenty of work to do in terms of do no harm. You know, a lot of, a lot of the work is figuring out how to stop stop the bad stuff from happening and putting out the fires that are always always erupting. There's plenty of that work to do. You can always be doing that. Uh, to do all the good we can all the time. Uh, much of our conference structure is set up, you know, through our various committees and agencies to try and be moving forward on the progressive issues. Uh, the, of, there's just, you know, there's an endless variety of those. So we can be trying to be proactive in that way. You know, we're defensive on the one, we're proactive on the other. But it's the staying in love with God. Where where are we giving genuine time, attention, and energy to that? And the best, I would say, the best of our uh, Episcopal leaders have that uh, a deeply rooted and nurtured sense of their own spiritual identity, their right relationship with uh, those around them, and how to model that, speak that, uh, and guide others into it. Principally, starting with the clergy. Uh, that's why you know my grief is bishops, even the best bishops, rarely get to have enough real transformative transformative face time with their clergy who are those people we want in the local pulpit doing exactly that same work at the local level uh, being a centered spiritual leader inviting others in into deepening their spiritual journeys so it's a 
you know, it's it's an it's an impossible job, um, but it's a it's a role that is necessary in the the fullness of the body of the church. Um, uh, off, I've over, over time said over and over again, probably one of the most helpful scriptures scriptures to us is where Paul says, "The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of the and can't say we have no need of the Episcopal office. It is a part of the body, and it's a strategic part of the body." Uh, I wish Paul had known a little bit more about the actual bodily functions because he would have he would have said uh, the the head cannot say to the pancreas we have no need of eat when you know how important your pancreas is you would give it a lot more respect right <laughs> as you were talking I was just trying to think of metaphors that might describe this function that you're have you're painting of the bishop and in, to some extent I hear you describing something like something like a filter to receive the administrative tasks and run them through a filter of what of this is necessary and what helps us do the work of the church of staying in love with God and what grounds us. So maybe, maybe the liver, (laughs) I don't know. It's, it's, it's an imperfect, it's an imperfect metaphor. I'm curious if you would have a handle on what, what things you think the office of bishop can do particularly well that we should let do that? And what things someone else needs to do that, <laughs> that would be helpful? Like there's limits, right? Like the bishop's not the the like doer of all the things, right? It's yeah. a particular role that can do a piece of it. Yeah. Um, but I'm guessing is also most fruitful when there's other folks alongside doing, like sometimes we just defer, like we'll let the bishop right fix all our problems right what would oh (laughs) um if you had a magic wand and you could give uh, capabilities to well i'll 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 tell you how i hear the question which is the answer so the way i hear the question is um is not only time management but human resources Mm. So I would say the you know the fastest, quickest, best thing that could be done for any bishop is to give them a, a small army of people to delegate stuff to, who carry that carry that authority of the office with them and the knowledge necessary to accomplish that well. That ain't going to happen. Uh, one of the things that con- has continuously been squeezed over time in every annual conference, without any doubt, is is the con- essentially the connectional ministry staff. I'll I'll just kind of plant my flag and do my old man rant. We always find reasons to justify the expense for everything related to trustees and finance. And when it comes to Sunday school, youth ministries, choir, worship leadership, all of a sudden that's where that's where we squeeze the budget, right? So the same then the same is true at the connectional level. It's a it's a fuzzier, more ambiguous, difficult to quanti- quantify uh, results. What is it that these things do on our behalf that fulfill our mission as the church? And uh, I guess what I would say is, well, we'll never know because we've never really invested in it, right? We've never really said this is strategically important uh, to our effectiveness in the mission of the church, and so we'll f- we'll fund that in order to make it happen. Bishop can't spend time um, on spiritual retreats, retreats with their district clergy when they have got to slog through administrative, very often legally uh, combustible uh, issues that require the authority of their office to exercise. Uh, it's kind of an answer. <laughs>
I hope. All right. I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, you grew up in Michigan. Yeah. What's your home church? Like what did you grow up in the church? I did grow up in the church, uh, Kalamazoo First Church, Kalamazoo, which was, uh, you know, the equivalent would be San Diego First Church here in this conference. Uh, it was a big, wonderful, glorious church. We had a big, dynamic youth program. Um, I, I, yeah, I, there's no way to tell my story without uh, telling the story of that church and its ministries. And I would, you know, I would have to, you know, I want to get it in there. It's connect it's connectional sensibilities. So, you know, the transformative experience for me in one summer was to go to um, a district youth camp. And that's where I felt a call to ministry. Two weeks later, our local church participated in the first of one of the first of the Appalachian service projects down in Kentucky. Absolutely life changing. I basically understood from from my call to ministry to uh, that the, the nature of being in ministry is to love and seeing the APS, the Appalachian Service Project, is like, this is how you love. You love these people who have the least of, uh, of anything. Um, then I went to conference camp as a, as a, a leader and understood, oh, this is how this, this, these things even happen, that other people get together so that people like me can come into the life of the church. And I did a, uh, at that time, I originally thought I wanted to be a music director, a conductor. So um, our associate pastor was the dean of a junior high music camp, which was mostly a choral camp. And uh, I said, well, let me do the instruments. And so I had like, you know, 10 kids on snare drums and four flutes. And that was my band, you know. <laughs> but all, all of those were a consequence of something that was uh, beyond the local church. And feeding that, you know, that regenerative cycle of going and coming and getting energy and bringing it back into the life of the local church. And that's, that's where, that's what I grew up on. Wow. Uh, so for you, is the connectional church, uh, like strategic way to uh, save ourselves from isolation and individualism? Or is it... Uh, I don't know. What would you describe as the like if you were going to give a short tagline yeah. for the I, I, connection enough, that offers us? Oddly enough, I think the 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 key word is accountability. Hmm. And by that I mean uh when when you think of the earliest earliest incarnation of the church was the Wesleyan Covenant groups, the accountability groups, where you know a relatively small group of people came together and held one another themselves, one another accountable uh in their spiritual lives and their discipleship. Right. So there was there was direct knowledge from and a sense of responsibility to if I'm going to say I'm a, a Christian and a Methodist, then this is what it means. And how am I doing it that um, the accountability group uh, existed uh, to a degree? And now I would say, you know, the ideal version, you know, any congregation is essentially a whole lot of little accountability groups. We call them finance committee or the kitchen committee or whatever. But it's basically where people know one another directly. And are kind of keeping tabs and helping one another walk the walk. The unique, the unique and special strategic function of our connectional system is that it makes every congregation an accountability group with other congregations. It's basically a way in which other congregations we hold ourselves accountable to what is it, what does it mean when we say we are Christians, and what does it mean when we say we're Methodists? Uh, I would say that's my great. 
uh, lament uh, and challenge and charge is uh, in the past we failed to do that well, and that's a part of why the church is so divisive now. We failed to hold ourselves accountable to our spiritual well-being, and instead we're holding ourselves accountable to a lot of other stuff that has become idolatrous within the church. Um, I, I have I have personal real issues with uh, Christian nationalism, and I think that's because of a lack of accountability, a lack of a spiritual accountability to one another. And that's how. Yeah, that I, I'm also troubled by the ways, in particular, General Conference in 2019, like took us like all the way over the cliff in terms of reworking accountability from a mutual holding yep. one another up yep. to the gospel to offer sort of correction and encouragement as we all sort of with humility try to reach the gospel and like weaponized it for the sake of persecuting yep. and prosecuting yep. LGBTQ plus clergy yep. and clergy who officiate their weddings. Like exactly right. we just lifted out two things and said, this is a unique form of sort of yeah. prosecutorial, I don't know, penalty. It just flattened our understanding of accountability. Exactly right. Exactly. And right. narrowed well. it so, so fiercely. Yeah. Uh, and so then, and we've really let conservatives in the church overtake the idea of accountability because they've right. for a long time been accusing uh, us in the West, uh, mm-hmm. rebel bishops of yep. not honoring the book of discipline because right. uh, our bishops have not enforced a couple right. of fairly narrow specific <laughs> rules yep. related to prohibiting LGBTQ plus clergy and and weddings in our churches. Um, but they, they've sort of acted like they understand accountability and we're right out of accountability right. as if the whole of accountability could be summed up on your faithfulness to these, exactly. like these two rules, right. uh, which is just such a thin and flattened. View of yeah. And, that, and that's where I would, uh, I would say one of the, one of the things on the, on the long run of our conversation that I wanted to come around to as we, as we were looking at this jurisdictional conference, where we're going to bring in some, some new bishops, you know, there's, there are some char- definitely some characteristics for us here in the West that have always been unique. And I would say uh, <laughs> need to cont- it's unfortunate they're unique, but we need to continue to sustain that. Um, but probably one of the one of the things that used to be presumed and is we can no longer obviously presume is a key function, again, because of the polity of the church distributes that executive power within the council of bishops that when they sit together at that that table ostensibly they are to they are to embody that strategic leadership function relative to the whole church although they have none have almost no formal mechanical levers or devices to accomplish that it's really by the influence uh, influence of their spiritual witness together that that they might be able to lead the church so persons coming into the role are going to have to, I would say, going to have to be even more both humble of heart, but also convic- convicted in their hearts about what is the role of the church and the necessity of we have got to find ways to do this together to, uh, to be able to move us forward. Because that's, you know, that's the role of the church to do that relative to the world. Uh, you know, Jesus, uh, the hard, hardest words, but most essential words where, where Jesus says, uh, to paraphrase, the kingdom is not of this world. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the means and devices of this world uh, are, are do not serve 
the spiritual well-being and identity uh, of us either individually or collectively. And so they have to be able to speak and embody a different way of being in the world. And that, so when they're around the table, they, they got to be ready. They got to know that that that's the task ahead of them. Yeah. I'm thinking of, um, so I don't want, I know we're close to our end of our time together, but I I don't want to not say something about the sort of, uh, prophetic social justice witness of the office of Bishop and its importance. I'm thinking back about Bishop Swenson, who you named and worked with, Mm -hmm. um, has been one of the bishops who early on stepped out in a clear articulation of a call to LGBTQ plus inclusion in the church. But she, I don't, I think at the beginning, she did it with others. There was a group of bishops at, was it 1996? general conference in denver that formally yeah yeah and there that, was the, uh, that sort of made a proclamation together yeah the the seven and uh you know they took a lot of a lot a lot of heat for that but it was it was predominantly the bishops within the west there were others but it was predominantly the bishops of the west but that's uh you know that's the nature of leadership is getting out ahead of things a little bit and yeah. saying this is what it can look like and this is what it should look like right. um I've appreciated that history of Episcopal leadership, particularly in the West, that is out there, but not entirely alone, still in accountability right. to someone or something, certainly the, to the gospel. Right. I think of um, uh, participating in Bishop Olavito's election. Uh, also, she's she became the singular person as the mm-hmm. first openly uh, queer bishop, yeah. but she was elected by the community together. And it was really a sense that I, my impression, my experience from participating in that was that we made that decision together collectively as a jurisdiction, that this was a way we were going to do this. And so she's ended up being the visible embodiment of our commitment and the lightning rod for resistance. Um, but I, I, I appreciate that there's been that community accountability, even in the prophetic office of the role and office of the bishop. Which, which I would say real quickly is a consequence of two things. One, scale, simply the size of our jurisdiction and therefore the College of Bishops is is, is the right size to be able to have a genuine team, uh, to have a common sensibility together. Although, you know, that is that is shifted over time. It has definitely uh, shifted over time. And the cohort of retired bishops, um, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm aware of, for a long time, Bishop Talbert was the sort of the grandfather presence that held that group together in the midst of some of the tensions that were in the group. And uh, as he grows older and less able to participate, that uh, it's harder to claim that within the whole. But it's it's so it's so vital. You know, a, num- a number of years ago, there was. Uh, uh, big time consultation, sort of, sort of as it was becoming evident within the Council of Bishops that there was this fragmentation beginning to happen, the fraying of that body. And they had uh, good, good outside help come in. And sort of the summary moment was when they put all the papers and the reports and all this stuff aside, and they asked the guy, he says, well, what do you think? And he said, well, it is clear addressing the, the the whole council of bishops that you are all highly effective spiritual leaders, but you are not a leadership team, mm. which is what they had, what they needed to be. 
And, uh, you know, so that's, you know, I mean, that's what we need our bishops to be together. It's what the church needs, it's what we need at the local level. Uh, you know, you as, a, you as a pastor or any pastor cannot do ministry on your own. You've got to have a team around you to take that strategic role for you as a local pastor and express that to the full scope of your charge to which you are, which you are appointed. Um, so it's, it's, you know, like I say, I've, I've been around too long and getting more cynical, holding on to the, to the ideals and the romanticism of what an inspiring leader to do needs to do. That's why it's, it's Rocky road ahead. I, I don't, I, I, you, you can't be honest and say it's, Oh, all it's all just going to happen. now. there's, there's some tough days ahead. Yeah, I we continue to negotiate and renegotiate what it means to belong together as an institution, what the future of our connectional institution uh, will be. Certainly, our bishops are a piece of the puzzle that will help us get there. Um, but I don't know, speaking on behalf of the local church, unless we're all together, it's like there's no there there. It's just. Uh, yeah, but you're I mean, this this is a great example of you do it. I mean, just you're doing this. To raise that collective awareness of yes, we're all in it together. That we are the body, and the body needs to be able to work together in a healthy way to do what we're doing called as a church. That's that's really valuable. So I, you know, I see this what you're doing right now is you're basically increasing the information and circulation of the body. It's like the nervous system is strengthened by having these kinds of conversations and making that available. Well, then, uh, thank you for going for this metaphorical morning jog with me, Gary. <laughs> I appreciate your time and your uh, wisdom and insight. You bet. Blessings to you and your ministry and your people's ministry. Amen. Thank you. I'm grateful to Gary for his time with us this morning and grateful for you for listening in as we seek to understand more about what it means for those of us located in a variety of places who seek to be faithful to the gospel and faithful in ministry to our communities. I hope there's been something in our conversation that might be of use to you and that you will continue to be a part of the ongoing work of discerning ways to be faithful to the call of Christ and in ministry through our churches. Thanks for being with us today. I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you watch it to add comments and reviews to share it with others. And I hope you'll join us back next week for another episode. Thanks for being with us. Peace.